If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. We are on the ninth commandment today. appreciate the songs that, uh, that we just uh, finished singing, uh, All I Have is Christ and He Will Hold Me Fast, um, was reminded in the run-up to this Sunday, was uh, spending some time reading in the Gospels and uh, came across the passage where uh, uh, one of the young men comes to Jesus and says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, what do the commands say? You know, do this, do this, do this. He says, oh, I've done all of that from my youth up to this very day. And then Jesus says, well, you lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. That's it. And he couldn't do it. And he went away sad because he was wealthy and comfortable. And the reminder there in that passage is not first and foremost, well, I guess there is a warning about the comfort and the danger that can come with wealth and affluence, for sure. Um, but, but deeper than that is the realization that there is no one ultimately who comes to a place where they can say, with a straight face, with a clean conscience, I have done all of this. What I have done is sufficient to inherit eternal life. So at the end of the day, if any of us are standing before our creator and our judge and our king and we were to be asked, why is it that you deserve anything good from me rather than judgment? If our answer starts off with, because I, we've already started off on the wrong foot. The answer to that question, why should I give you any good thing, has to begin with, because Christ because Christ kept the law for me. Because Christ's obedience has counted for me. Because Christ has promised that everyone who comes to him will not be turned away. Because Christ has said that he will seal me with his spirit so that I will be kept and held firm until that last final day. And so once again, as we come to the ninth commandment, as we have done with the commandments that, uh, that came before, and even one more command that we have next week. We want to remind ourselves over and over again of this tension that runs through the law and the commands, which is that uh, it is impossible to read with any sort of honesty or sincerity and not come away from these commands with a healthy sense or dose of conviction. And yet with that conviction ought to come with it an accompanying comfort and even joy because when we see the depths of our sin and how undeserving we are, the greater we can rejoice in the gift that has been given to us in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. The ninth commandment states, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that it is not because of any works of righteousness that we have done, 
that enables us to come into your presence. If that were the case, none of us would be able to approach you, but it's because of the full and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our account that we are able to offer up even these meager and weak prayers. We ask, Father, that you would look upon your people here at Edgewood with compassion and kindness. Would you not cast us out because of the sluggishness of our hearts, the dullness of our minds? But would you continue to see us through the perfections of your Son? And would you listen to the voice of your Spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are, in fact, sons and daughters of the living God? We know that because this is what you have promised us, that as we ask for this, you have guaranteed to answer this prayer, that for all who come to you, you will not turn them away, and that for those of us who have been uh, taken resting in the hand of your Son and in your hand, that no one and nothing can pluck us out of your hand, and that is where we find our confidence and our comfort here this morning. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the ninth command has both a prohibition and then by implication as we continue to work our way through the Old Testament law, has not just a prohibition but a prescription. It, it points us in a certain direction. So we'll start the way that we have with all the other previous commands. Let's just look and try to articulate or expound a little bit further what this law prohibits, what it forbids, and then consider also then what's on the flip side of that command. If this is what God is forbidding his people from doing, what is the direction that he's encouraging us to move in? So we might say something like this. That the ninth command prohibits harming the life or reputation of a neighbor by making false statements or by concealing the truth. The ninth command prohibits harming the life or reputation of a neighbor by making false statements or by concealing the truth. We're going to try to unpack that through some Old Testament passages here. Framed positively, what the ninth command is prescribing for God's people or the direction that it's pointing us in is this, that we ought to be, that God's people ought to be the kind of people who preserve and promote our neighbor's life and reputation by speaking truthfully and impartially. That we ought to be preserving and promoting our neighbor's life and reputation by speaking truthfully and impartially. Now, one thing that we can say right off, but we'll use this sort of as a, as a springboard to get into the, the, the meaning and the application of this command as it's fleshed out or exposited in the rest of the law. When you read in, uh, in 2016, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, technically speaking, or to be uh, doggedly rigid in the reading of that law, that command says something more than just simply, you will not lie. Lying, I think it becomes very clear and very obvious as we go not very far down the, the line of God's Old Testament law, is of course included in this. But in terms of the explicit framing or statement of this law, what's being said here is more of a legal connotation, that you as a witness, someone who is called upon or who must give some sort of a verbal statement, 
concerning actions or events that pertain to your neighbor. Anytime that you speak of events, you must speak truthfully so that justice can be accomplished within God's covenant community. In other words, the ninth commandment is given in one sense to promote justice and fair, equitable treatment within the community of God's people. But as we continue to go, to go through the Old Testament and we see the, the direction that all of this is moving, it's not merely a command that is concerned with legalities or litigation, but it gets to the root of how we use our words and our speech for anything in life. So if the previous commands, some of the ones that we looked at, commands like don't murder and don't steal and don't commit adultery, had a common connection in the sense that it related to things that we did with our bodies perhaps to another person, an assault or an offense on their physical safety or sanctification. This is a little bit more immaterial. This is it's saying this is a harm that we bring not physically, perhaps, but by the way that we use our words. So let's look a little bit further at the meaning and the application of this in the Old Testament context to see how this fundamental baseline command is built upon in the early pages of Scripture. So if you want to hold your place here in Exodus 20, flip over just a, a page or two to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23, look at verses 1 through 3 and consider how this exposition or this furthering comment helps us to understand what the Lord is after in the ninth commandment. Exodus 23, 1, you shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You will not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. So if we take the ninth commandment, you will not bear false witness against your neighbor, and we lay alongside of it these verses in Exodus 23, in just sort of a, a very shorthand way, what the Lord is communicating to His people, what He's communicating to us, is that in everything that we say, in any speech, in any testifying to what is true and right, our bearing witness to what is true has to be incorruptible and impartial. Incorruptible and impartial. Notice how basically everything is covered here in a very short passage of Scripture. In the opening verses, after the initial statement, you will not bear a false report, it goes on to say, you will not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You will not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. 
our witness to the truth as God's people is not determined by what is convenient, what is popular, or what is fashionable. You see that, right? You hear that. If the world is moving in one direction, saying, this is what we believe to be true. If the world is moving in one direction and they say, the wicked is to be declared good, and the good are to be declared, are to be declared wicked, if the entire world moves in that direction, but because you know that is not the truth, you may not go after the rest of the world. You must stand alone and say, that is not true. The truth does not cease to be truth simply because it is no longer fashionable. It should not be difficult for us to see the relevance and the application of these verses, of this teaching, of this instruction to our modern day setting and environment in this particular cultural moment. The world, it seems like, and I understand that's a little hyperbole. It never really is the world because God always has his people in the world. But it often seems like the world has gone absolutely mad. Up is down, down is up. There used to be two sexes, now there are 50 plus. Life is not life, truth is not truth. And the reason that we know that this truth is no longer true anymore is because we've taken a popular vote. The masses say, this is the direction that we're moving in. We're not speaking that truth anymore. We're speaking this new, refined, redirected truth. God says, my people will not do that. But once again, let me stress, it is not merely the fact that God insists that his people not follow the crowd, not succumb to popular opinion, because he just wants us to be, what, holy, sanctified contrarians, right, always trying to gum up the works. That's, that's not what God is after. The context of these statements are given for the benefit of your neighbor. In other words, if you go along with the lie, if you cease telling the truth, that lie that you help to promote will lead to the harm and the destruction of innocent people. So that you will not share in the harm and the destruction of innocent people, you cannot promote anything that would be contrary to the truth that would undermine the ground that they stand on. You cannot falsely accuse them. You cannot redesign society or culture or the created order because to do so, to try to make the lie a truth, is to bring harm and irreparable damage 
to the people. Notice also, though, that in these same verses, still in Exodus 23, in verse 3, after saying that we won't shape or compromise the truth for the sake of the masses or the crowd or popular opinion, it also says in verse 3, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Which means, at least in part, that truth ought not to be corrupted by pity. Right? One of the things that is always going to be tempting God's people, particularly when it comes to bearing witness to the truth, proclaiming what is right and good and true according to God's Word, is that we will be presented, God's people will be castigated as people who are harsh and cruel and unloving. We will be tempted to buy into the notion that because this person has it so hard or because they don't have all of the advantages that we have, therefore we ought to make the truth a little bit more malleable for them. It's as if we think that we can take God's truth, contort it, shape it, all because we think that we can be more compassionate than God can be. None of us, none of us will ever be more merciful than God. It is a gift and a gracious act of God that he would give us his truth even when his truth is uncomfortable and makes us wince under conviction. So the ninth command in asking and commanding and demanding God's people to uphold the truth is concerned with the fact that no matter where popular opinion is going, no matter what the societal currents are, no matter what seems to be most compassionate at this particular moment for this particular person, what God's people are concerned about first and foremost is promoting what is true and right for the good of God's people. Go to Leviticus 19. Look at verses 15 and 16. Leviticus 19, 15 and 16. Leviticus 19, 15 and 16, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. So whether rich or poor, whether powerful or weak, truth remains truth. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. This presses the matter further. Because if, as the foundation, God is communicating to his people in the ninth command, you must not be a false witness when justice is 
being executed or carried out, when righteous decisions are being made or wrestled with, you must be a faithful and true witness. No matter what the crowd says, no matter what your pity may tell you. This presses further to go even into more informal type settings and situations. It's not merely that God is concerned that you speak what is true and right when you're in a formal courtroom setting or when you're testifying on Capitol Hill before Congress. God is concerned that his people speak truthfully and speak what is right even when they are moving in and out behind the scenes when nobody else perhaps would call them to account. You will not go about as a slanderer among your people. You know what a slanderer is, right? Slanderer is someone who goes about making accusations. Or perhaps it's not an outright explicit accusation. Perhaps it's a suggestion or a hint of something improper. Or perhaps it's a prayer request. Brother so-and-so, uh, brother so-and-so, let me tell you why we need to pray for brother so-and-so. You slander with your words, you break down, you attack your brother or your sister with your speech. Not in a courtroom, not on a cable news show, not on a podcast, not in radio, you do it in a small group. Or you do it when you're sitting across the table with your spouse. Slander. Chopping people down to size. Harming their reputation. Attributing to them motives of which there is no possible way that you can discern because you cannot read into the heart and mind of anyone. Not even yourself. So on the first hand, not bearing false witness means that we must not do what is actually evil to someone. We must not speak falsehood, but it also means that in terms of slander or bringing ill reports or poor reports on someone else, that it's not enough merely to refrain from doing what is lying or deceitful. We must see to it that anything that we say is actually building people up. As Paul would say, let everything done be done for edification. And then flip back a couple pages to Leviticus 5. Right, so you're, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, well, if this is how difficult it is to walk the straight and narrow in telling the truth, I'm just not going to say anything. Vow of silence. The monks were on to something, right? <laughs> yes. I'm not going to say anything bad. I'm not going to run the risk of having impure motives get in and slander. I'm just not going to say anything. 
Leviticus 5.1. If a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify or a public call to testify when he is a witness, whether he is seen or known, if he does not tell, then he will bear his guilt. That, that sounds a little clunky, perhaps, coming from the New American Standard. But, but you, under, you understand what that verse is saying? If there's a situation in which you know what is true on this matter concerning this person under these circumstances, and you're asked to bear witness to what is true, you are obligated to speak what is true. You cannot just simply sit by as a passive observer and say, I don't want to get involved in that mess. Why? Why would God insist that His people speak only what is true? That His people speak only what is going to be building up the reputation and the life of other people? Why would He insist that if you know the truth and you're called to share it, that you are obligated to give the truth that you know? Well, at the risk of painting with too broad of a brush, it must be that in God's wisdom, He knows that one of the things that guarantees, that protects and preserves flourishing life for His people is maintaining and upholding truth. The more a people try to live according to the truth as they want it to be, or as they see fit, the more chaotic their life will be. Some of you out here right now are saying, yes, that's right, and that's why I'm a truth teller. When I know something to be true, I don't care if they ask me or not. I'm going to tell them. All right, just, just pause for a second. Because along with the expectation that God's people will speak only what is true, no matter how inconvenient or uncomfortable it is, even when we would rather not be involved, along with that insistence, along with that command, comes a whole host of wisdom statements in Proverbs that tell us how we are to go about telling the truth, right? You, you get that? It's not just that we tell the truth, but even how we tell the truth is important. So Proverbs 25, 11, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. You picture the gold apple as the word, as the truth. It's not just that you have something that is good and valuable in the truth. It's that you frame it, you set it in the right circumstances. Meaning perhaps 
you share what is good and valuable and beautiful without diluting it, but also with wisdom at the right time when it can be received in the best possible way. Some of us have the tendency to say, I got a bag full of gold apples here, and I'm hucking it at every person that comes by because they need to have sense knocked into their thick skulls. It hurts to get hit with a solid gold apple. And more often than not, people who are hit unexpectedly with a chunk of valuable metal do not turn and say thank you to the person who just assaulted them with the truth. You, you see what we're getting at? There needs to be a way for God's people to be uncompromising with the truth and yet to be extremely wise and gracious in the way that they wield it. Isn't that what we see with Jesus and his earthly ministry? Can you imagine? We can't. But, just, but try for a sake. Can you imagine if Jesus had just simply gone around and every opportunity he had to confront someone with the truth, he did that. Can you imagine what that would have looked like? What that would have sounded like? Would have all been true, would have all been right, But if not done in the right time, in the right way, even truth can be spoken without any love or grace attached to it. In other words, we are so bent and twisted in our fallen nature, in our flesh, that even when we take God's truth and seek to use it in a way that is right and unadulterated, we are perfectly capable of corrupting the truth so that we use the truth in the wrong way. At the end of the day, what God is after for His people is not to create a society, a community, a little culture of little lawyers running around sin sniffers going everywhere, sniffing out the truth so that they can criticize and criminalize everyone with every opportunity that they have. Rather, what God is trying to cultivate in the hearts and minds of His people is that truth is such a powerful and valuable commodity. It ought to be used. It needs to be used to further life. Christian, if your view of giving the truth, speaking the truth, is simply is something similar to pulling the pen in a grenade, rolling it in the room, and then walking out and saying, well, I was faithful, I think you've missed the point of what God is intending to do with His truth. God is wanting His truth to draw people deeper into life and joy God is wanting His people to be so committed to the truth for the good, for the benefit of their brothers and sisters and their neighbors around them that they are willing to share the truth even when it comes at personal cost to them. 
Turn to Matthew, chapter 26. I had never seen or considered this before, this, this contrast in Matthew 26 that's presented both in, in the most sinful way and also in the most glorious way, the ninth commandment in Matthew 26. Start with me at verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Why? So that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Is that, is that a true statement? Is it truth being used for a good and profitable end? The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now pause right there for a minute. Do you hear what's, what just happened? That's Leviticus 5. That's the high priest in a public setting saying, you are under obligation. You are under oath as part of this community to speak what is true. Why do they want Jesus to speak what is true? so that they can destroy him. What will Jesus do when Leviticus 5.1 is called on him? Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. In this, this brief snapshot, you, you see the, the opposite ends of the spectrum. In sin and depravity, the enemies of Christ are attempting to use deceit, lies, truth, manipulated, twisted, partial, com uh, compromised, however it is, for the sake not of saving life, but of taking life. Jesus, on the righteous end of that spectrum, knowing that anything that he says will be used against him, unjustly, nevertheless, submits himself to the law of God when he is called upon to give a truthful statement in a way that upholds the righteousness of God. And why does Jesus do that? Jesus gives the statement. He makes the confession of what is true. He is a true witness 
knowing that this will cost him his life. This is the fulfillment of the ninth commandment. This is the example that we are called to follow. This means that we cannot say that we have found the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. That we can't lay claim to saying that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And then, when it risks to our fortunes or our comfort or our reputation, bail on the truth as it is in Jesus. Jesus has gone ahead of us as a forerunner and has shown us that when we are called to give witness to what is true, no matter what the personal cost, it is always right to bear testimony to the truth. And the truth is Jesus. But isn't it just like God to upend evil intentions and desires so that obedience to His commands actually do lead to the furthering of life. Leviticus 5, Jesus, you have to tell us the truth. You can't be silent. You must tell us what you know to be true. And so Jesus does knowing that He's sealing His death. Oh, but in obedience to the ninth command, in obedience to Leviticus 5, even when it would cost him his life, his obedience to the commands has ushered in life everlasting. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And we get that life because he was willing to sacrifice his own life in obedience to the will of the Father in upholding the ninth commandment. Turn to 1 John. Chapter 1. Listen then to what John says is the motivation, is the reasoning for the apostles and by extension for all Christians to bear witness to the truth. Now you're not going to hear in this passage, you're not going to hear an explicit quote from Exodus 20.16. You're not going to hear about bearing false witness, but you're going to hear language that pertains or that relates to it about testifying or bearing witness or proclaiming. 1 John 1.1 What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested or revealed, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You, you hear that so far? What we know to be true, what has been shown to us through Jesus Christ, through His life, through His teaching, we now bear witness to that truth. We share it with you. 
Verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Why? In this opening letter that John writes, why is he so dogged and committed to declaring the truth as it is in and found in Jesus Christ? It's because John knows that if anyone is presented with the truth, if they turn and respond to that truth, that rather than finding condemnation, what is deserved that anyone who would respond to that truth would find life. That the truth does not drive people away from God. The truth as it's found in Jesus Christ draws them into God. It brings them into life. It doesn't harm life. It gives life. People, that ought to be the motivation in everything that we do with our truth-telling to say that because truth is in Jesus, anything that we do, we want to be pointing back to Him. We want the truth that we bear witness to, to be drawing people into where they can find fellowship with the Father. Because anything outside of the truth, anything that is a lie or is deceitful, is death. It doesn't matter how comfortable you make someone if you're telling them a lie and the lie is going to lead them to death. All we're doing is making them comfortable as they get closer to destruction. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And then keep going, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We break the ninth commandment. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Why do we want to speak truthfully to one another? Why do we want to say what is true to one another, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it brings conviction? Why do we want to preach and to speak only what God has said in his word and nothing else? Because it's only in God's truth that sinners are able to be made clean. Because it's only in seeing yourself in the light of God's truth that you're able then to see where to go to find cleansing and healing and restoration. And we are doing ourselves and people outside of these walls no favors when we don't point them to the truth in Jesus Christ. We want our joy here at Edgewood to be full and complete, and we will not have full, complete joy if we do not have full and complete truth.
Oh, how I pray that not just for my heart, but for the hearts of the people in this church, that the more that we see how the truth is embodied in the person and grace of Jesus Christ, that our disposition, our attitude would be, Lord, say whatever you want. Bring whatever conviction, expose whatever sin, so long as it's true, so long as it gets me more of Jesus. Give me that. Keep lies and deception far from me. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Father, by the powerful work of your Holy Spirit, for those of us who have placed our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ, we have come to learn that all truth is found in the person and work of your Son. We have come to see and come to know, however imperfectly, that we are being renewed and recreated in the holiness and righteousness of the truth. That the truth of God, as it's found in Jesus Christ and revealed to us by the power of your Spirit, is the source of life for your people. And we ask that you would continue to renew our minds day by day with your truth. Take your truth, Father, and press it deep into our minds. Cause it to move from our minds down into our hearts so that not only would we know the truth, but that we would love it and that we would live according to it. At the end of the day, Father, we ask that you would help us to see and to know and be convinced of two things. One, that all truth is going to lead us to Jesus, and that's what we most desperately want and need. And that in coming to Jesus by the truth, we would be jealous and eager for our brothers and sisters to grow and to flourish in their life by the truth that you have given us. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.